Hello, and thank you for joining us for this episode of Burn Your Draft, an exploration of the Reed College senior thesis process and experience. I'm your host, Frank Tangerlini, and this week we'll be talking with Lewis Chapman. Today, we'll talk fundamentals with Lewis and hear about their research on Pat Robertson and Christian fundamentalists. Cool. Well, welcome, Lewis. Uh, do you want to just start by giving us your name, where you're from, what department you were in, and the name of your thesis? Yeah. So my name is Lewis Chapman. I'm from New Jersey, and I thesis in the Department of Political Science. My thesis was called A Prophet at the Margins, Pat Robertson's Politics of Truth, Text, and Interpretation. Hmm. So what was that? Uh, so that thesis was, uh, I sort of chose it as the culmination of this like, lifelong, I would say fascination, maybe obsession with the landscape of American religion and especially conservative Christianity and, and things like Mormonism as well. Um, thesis was this permission to just completely lose myself in this topic. Um, and at one point I actually did almost lose myself, uh, but it was this excuse to indulge these intellectual impulses uh, and to find out, you know, who fundamentalists are, uh, what they say they believe, what they actually believe, and what does it mean for you know, a secular person to talk to and learn from and engage with them. And I did that by uh, investigating and essentially doing a big old book report on uh, some of the writings of a televangelist named Pat Robertson. Who is Pat Robertson? Yeah, Pat Robertson is a sort of titan of fundamentalist culture and politics and business. He's been active for about the past 50 years. He runs his own broadcasting network called the Christian Broadcasting Network, or CBN, uh, which is where most people know him from. It's his show on CBN called The 700 Club. Uh, but he also you know, has his own university, has his own hotel, he has a jet chartering service. Um, and he, you know, for the past half a century, has been communicating with and, and you know, reaching out to fundamentalists across the country and across the world. I think the only fundamentalist of the past, you know, 50 years who compares to his level of influence and power is Jerry Falwell uh, of Liberty University. The first one, not his, not his uh, ill-fated son. So was your thesis focusing on different institutions that have these fundamentalist like ties to them? Or was it focusing more on the fundamentalists themselves? Uh, my thesis was focusing primarily on Pat Robertson and what Pat Robertson says and what he believes. Uh, originally, I did want to look at fundamentalist institutions, fundamentalists as a whole. Um, but it turns out that when you tell that to your thesis advisor, um, which in my case was Tamara Metz, you know, oftentimes they will say, you need to focus, you need to narrow it down so that you can really uh, go in depth. So I was able to pick this fundamentalist leader, this incredibly influential fundamentalist leader, and uh, through determining what he thinks and what he believes extrapolate to a degree about what the people he has influenced and the people he has uh, spoken to over the past 50 years, what they believe. So I sort of got to the former by way of Pat Robertson. So why this topic? What brought you into it? What made you think that this is your thesis? Well, I've been, as I said, obsessed with sort of especially conservative American Christianity for the past, like, since eighth grade, really. So for, for a long time now. Um, and that's taken many forms, whether it's doing independent research projects like this one. Uh, I was visiting churches for about a year and a half, partly for fun, partly, you know, for this thesis. 
so of course I had all these intellectual impulses, all these curiosities, and this was a chance to spend an entire year where the primary focus of my academic uh, experience was going to be following these impulses, investigating these things, speaking to these people. I got to engage with a lot of fundamentalists, both through some background research the summer before uh, at a Baptist church here and on a, uh, an academic visit to Pat Robertson's university, Regent University in Virginia Beach. So it was an adventure, uh, both intellectually and sort of physically as well. Uh, and it was uh, so satisfying, in fact, that I kind of have stopped, stopped doing a lot of those things uh, over the past year and a half since I graduated. So this like compiled not only book research, but also some field work and then listening to Pat Robertson? Uh, yes, yeah. Uh, so I did a lot of preliminary research on fundamentalists, uh, not just their history and theology, but also uh, culture and psychology. There's a lot of really interesting literature on uh, the way that uh, specifically the Bible influences every aspect of a fundamentalist's life, uh, the way that it is used as a kind of reference point and an anchor point for an entire existence, an entire, you know, your relationship to your family and your friends and, of course, your church. Uh, all of that uh, is informed by scripture. Uh, so learning, you know, fundamentalist psychology was a, a huge part of it. And then, yes, there was a sort of part where I read, I read four of Pat Robertson's books, uh, two sort of works of cultural commentary uh, and one work of conspiracy theory uh, and then one sort of broader tips for life kind of book. Uh, and then I got to go and interview the pastor of Greater Portland Baptist Church and a couple of law professors at Regent University. I was supposed to take an archival visit at Regent University, but they didn't let me in, even though they said they would. Why, Why did they not let you in? <sighs> Well, uh, the actual answer to that is kind of boring, but it was one of the sort of challenges that I faced. And uh, one of the sort of interesting ways of that challenge actually became really, uh, really helpful, really fruitful in learning about my thesis. It turns out that a lot of the materials in the archive are owned not by Regent University, but by the Christian Broadcasting Network, which is based off of Regent's campus. It's a five minute walk from the library, but uh, is a lot harder to get in contact with. I heard stories of students actually having to sign NDAs before going into the archives. Wow. <laughs> I guess that's better than being baptized. <laughs> well, uh, actually, that ties into another story that maybe I'll tell later. Um, the reason to sign an NDA is probably because uh, there are a lot of shady business practices that occur when these institutions reach the like $200 million, you know, uh, mark. In fact, one of the reasons that Jerry Falwell got into fundamentalism was that the SEC was investigating securities fraud. Um, <laughs> getting sidetracked. So I couldn't get in because uh, the university doesn't own the archive materials. The Christian Broadcasting Network does. So I went to CBN uh, and they wouldn't let me in, uh, but they did give me a tour of these sort of public facing facilities. It was just me and this uh, wonderful old woman whose name I think was Gladys. And, you know, uh, we got to talking about the paintings on the wall and here's this enormous fresco of, you know, uh, Mary and Joseph, you know, fleeing to Egypt and things. And at the end of it, she said, you know, may I pray over you? And I said, yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, like a good anthropologist, we both bow our heads. And she says, you know, God, please protect Lewis. Please help Lewis finish the thesis. Da -da 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 -da. Send angels to watch over Lewis as he's flying home and things like that. 
And, and at the end of it, I was sort of a little incensed because it was like, you just said, help me with my thesis, but you wouldn't let me in to you know, do the <laughs> things I came here to do. But then, of course, I started thinking about all the things that I experienced in Virginia Beach. You know, I had heard people speak in tongues at a church service for the first time in my life. I had been witnessed to by, you know, told about people's experience with religion uh, by professors and Uber drivers and churchgoers. Uh, and just for a second there, I had been sort of integrated into the fold of, of fundamentalist life in a place I'd never been with people I'd never met. And I think learning to decipher that experience it was a lot harder than just looking at some archive materials would have been, but it was phenomenally helpful in understanding like the, the kind of world that Pat Robertson helped create and what these people do in their daily lives and how they interact, uh, I mean, on his home turf. Yeah, this sounds very anthropological. How did you tie it into poli-sci? That is a great question. Uh, <laughs> this is pretty pretty flatly, pretty self-indulgently a religion thesis. I did this because I am fascinated by religion and I wanted to learn as much about it as possible within the context of a political science thesis, within those limitations. But the structure of my thesis was a structure that involved doing a bit of history, doing a little sort of analysis of somebody's political writings, and then trying to discern uh, that person's relationship to political knowledge. So the end claim of my thesis was actually a claim about Pat Robertson's relationship to political knowledge and how that relationship is constituted by his relationship to biblical knowledge. It's actually a very cool claim and a very exciting claim to make as a political scientist. But at the end of the day, the reason that I did it, you know, sort of open secret, the reason that I did it is because I was curious about this religious group and wanted to learn more about this religious group in religious terms. Yeah. So you said you said you reached that thesis or that conclusion. Was that the outcome that you expected or was there other outcomes that you were looking for? What I was hoping to do when I entered my thesis was to answer this very broad question of, is it possible for a secular person and a person whose entire life is constituted by their relationship to religion to have a conversation? Like when the professors in the fundamentalist law school said the word God, there were a specific set of meanings behind that word that I don't share. So it's like kind of like we're speaking in a different language. And I wanted to see if that language barrier can be surpassed. But it turns out, I think you could probably spend your entire life trying to answer that question and get nowhere on it. Um, so Tamara said, Lewis, in eight months, can you please pick something narrower? And I got somewhere pretty close to the ballpark of that question, which is I was able to make a claim about why these people believe the things that they believe in a way that I could explain to someone like my dad, who does not understand for a second why these people believe the things that they believe. Um, and I can say, well, you know, Pat Robertson believes this about the Constitution, and he believes this about, you know, his anti-Semitic New World Order stuff, because when he looks at the Bible, this is what he sees. And then when he looks at the Constitution, this is what he sees. And you can see how those two things are, are related to each other, which I think is about as close as I could have hoped to have gotten uh, with the sort of limited time and resources that I had access to. Nice. So other than not being allowed into that, into the archives, were there any other unexpected challenges that you faced during this process? Yes, I had to dig very deep into social theory, um, which I was sort of not thrilled about doing at the beginning because I said to Tamara, like, I know what a fundamentalist is. Like, you can show me a person and I can tell you that. And she said, well, no, 
you have to be really robust in your definition. You have to you know, incorporate these theories that will allow the rest of your observations to follow from them. So it's not just enough to define fundamentalist. You have to define fundamentalist according to the aspects you think you'll use later in your thesis, which is a very challenging thing to do uh, in the early phases of your thesis. So I had to read a lot of social theory and I had to create a definition of fundamentalist that didn't just incorporate their religious beliefs, but also their social practices, their culture, in some cases, uh, their discursive methods. So how they speak to and about one another uh, and people who aren't fundamentalists. And it, of course, was very helpful in my thesis. And it was sort of uh, the reason I didn't fail my orals is I had this really coherent and clear definition, but it was a lot of work in a field I wasn't expecting to do a lot of work in. What did you come up with like as your definition? What are the main aspects of a fundamentalist? Right. Uh, well, on a religious note, fundamentalists believe that the Bible is a, you know, inerrant work uh, written by God, that everything in the Bible is factual and that it is a sort of template for the Christian life. They believe that Jesus died for our sins and was resurrected. And that if you uh, confess faith in Jesus, you go to heaven just like that, uh, they believe in the eventual rapture, the eventual apocalypse, the reign of Christ for a thousand years on earth, followed by uh, the sort of end of the material existence, uh, essentially. Uh, but that wasn't enough for my thesis. And I wound up digging into uh, Michael Warner's theory of publics and counterpublics, which is a theory about how audiences are socially constructed. So when a person speaks to an audience, they are speaking to a public and the imagined audience in their head is also that public. So it's kind of reflexive. Um, fundamentalism is a kind of public. Uh, when Pat Robertson speaks, he is speaking to fundamentalists as a sort of idea. And also the people who listen to him are fundamentalists because they are listening to him. Uh, but fundamentalism, because it's not really in the American mainstream, uh, is a kind of counter public. Uh, so because fundamentalist discourses aren't necessarily as acceptable in the public sphere. Uh, that doesn't stop a lot of people from trying, but in theory, you know, the U.S. is separation of church and state excludes fundamentalism from, you know, political discourse. Uh, they're what's called a counter public, which is a public that defines itself by opposition to the broader, more mainstream public. Very interesting. I know it was, it was uh, the least exciting part of my thesis, but one of the most important parts of it. Yeah, I could see that. Did, is Pat, is Pat Robertson's show a radio show or a TV show? It is a television show. Um, you can still see him on there. Uh, I think it also goes out on radio. I'm actually not sure, uh, but I don't think it's on any of the channels around here. <laughs> I just think about Christian radio a lot. I would sit in the art building while my friends were doing their projects and listen to, uh, oh, I can't remember the name of the network. It's like a fundamentalist, like Christian network. And they have uh, old sermons about different Bible verses, you know, interspersed with uh, Christian hymns and things like that. It was a, it was a real pastime. Yeah. Every other station seems to be religious music or preaching here. So I don't know about that one. Um, what skills do you, do you think you acquired or strengthened during this experience? I became a much better interviewer. Um, I think between that and the admission office, I should really consider, uh, <laughs> consider a career in it. Uh, but interviewing fundamentalists about their faith can be challenging sometimes uh, because every aspect of their life has some sort of faith-based element. And also 
they're trying to convert you. Uh, so not only do you have to sort of learn to guide them to what you really want, you have to also try to sort of roll with the punches of their evangelization to you. It does not matter what you say to them about why you're here. You know, I was very upfront when I went to the Greater Portland Baptist Church. I said, I'm here for academic reasons. I'm here to learn about fundamentalism on a sort of cultural and religious level. But they know why you're really there uh, because they have met people like you who showed up to that church one day and it changed their life forever. And it almost did. Uh, can I tell this story? Yeah. Which is um, one of the ways my life has changed since this thesis is that it has made me stop visiting churches uh, because I used to do it, like I said, for fun and also, you know, possibly in the hopes of finding a religious community that really spoke to me. Uh, but there was an incident that happened early on in my thesis process when I was attending this fundamentalist church out in Gresham, uh, Greater Portland Baptist Church. I went for about six weeks and there was this week long sermon series of sort of this hellfire and brimstone kind of really uh, uh, exciting evangelistic series that I almost had a conversion experience at the end of. Uh, so at the end of this, you know, big screaming red faced sermon, the guy says, all right, you know, all those who did not yet know the name of Jesus, like come up to the front and pray with me. And I felt this thing in my chest. Like I have to go up there. Um, I didn't, I didn't follow through with it. Nothing came of it, but I was there and it happened to me. And, and it took me a while to understand what had happened and why that had happened. And I think it happened because I was flippant and I got cocky and I thought that I could outsmart religion and that I could just show up to a place and go there for six weeks with no anthropological training and that I would be fine. I can tell you that I had a similar experience with the Mormon church where I went for six months and then they started getting into their political ideologies and that's when I had to peace. <laughs> Yeah, I, I had the same thing. I went to Salt Lake City in the March of my senior year over spring break. And it was a very similar thing of like, could I see myself doing this? Could I do it? <laughs> it's, it's, they make it look so good. The Mormons, especially, they make it look so good. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's a challenge, right? I think like Reedy's love to play with knowledge and Reedy's a place where you can do that. And you can mess around with art and literature and science and math and all sorts of things, you know, to your heart's content. But you kind of can't mess around with religion right? It's yeah. half a million years old and it will just destroy you if you're not careful. That Mike Fote is one of my most sort of treasured mentors through the whole process. He talked about students of his in the 90s who would thesis on cults and then get sucked into those cults uh, because religion is powerful and it's powerful in ways that elude our comprehension uh, in ways that can't be expressed in a thesis or picked up in six weeks by an undergraduate. And, and no matter how careful you are, it can change your life in an instant. Right, you yeah. know this. You know, yeah. I think that that may have been the most valuable thing that I learned. Were you raised religious? I was not. I was not. I was raised uh, by two atheists. We would go to uh, Christmas service with our Presbyterian friends once mm -hmm. a year. Um, but I think, in the same way, people raised in uh, strict households tend to cut loose when they go to college. Being raised in a secular household made me very hungry to see what this whole thing was about. I see. I was. Raised Catholic, and by that I mean I was raised by two people who were raised Catholic. So, <laughs> how do you think your thesis experience will inform your life after Reed? Slash, what are what are you up to right now? Now that you've graduated, well, uh, since I graduated, I have been working in theater. I lived in Juneau, Alaska for a while, which is really the kind of place where you cannot go to churches because you will see the people from those churches at the grocery store and at the coffee shop. 
you know, you can't leave by road. So if the Mormons find out where you live, they will just come to your door every day. Uh, one of the things the thesis has helped me do is it has helped me understand the way that a lot of religious groups change and uh, the way that they oftentimes mask, you know, naked political ambition with religious rhetoric. Because I've met people who earnestly believe these things because they believe that God also believes those things and they want to be like God. Uh, and I've also, you know, met people and oftentimes seen people on the TV who are just part of a political coalition, who just are enacting wanton cruelty and maybe occasionally go to a church service. And I think the sort of heartbreaking thing is that those people are in a very strong, very robust coalition with the people who genuinely believe it morally. Um, and it doesn't seem to matter to either of those groups of people as well. It shouldn't, right? It's, it's a matter of political utility. And if you win by allying with people who are cruel for cruelty's sake, then that's how you win. Uh, but it's, it's been a challenge to see, uh, but it has helped me, I think, understand the landscape of American politics, especially American politics on the right, uh, better than I could have if I hadn't, uh, spent so much time among fundamentalists and spent so much time reading the works of one of the architects of American fundamentalism. Wow, so you kind of got the best of both worlds. You both now know how to communicate with the right and having gone to read, you're really good at communicating with the left. <laughs> well, I don't do much communication with anybody these days uh, <laughs> since lockdown, but it has helped. And actually I hadn't thought of it, but I had, uh, one of my supervisors in the admission office was asked about people that read, you know, the intellectual diversity question. Um, and, and she used me as an example. And I was completely floored when she said, as I said, I, com I had not even thought of that for a second, that this represents like a sort of reaching out, you know, between ideologies and often, you know, quite dramatically between ideologies. Uh, because to me, these, these, uh, People are just like cool people I get to hang out with at churches and, and ask questions. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, I don't have any more questions. Do you have anything that you want to like add on or just like something cool about your thesis? Yeah, this is an interesting sort of factoid is I got to ask, I got to ask the pastor of the Greater Portland Baptist Church what he thinks about Trump. Uh, this was in the fall of 2018. Um, and I, I sort of asked it in an oblique way. We met for coffee right before I stopped going to that church, right before my sort of conversion experience. And I said, Pastor Rick, you mentioned earlier in church on Sunday that you thought we should pray for our elected officials. And then you said, I know some of you think that we shouldn't pray for our elected officials, uh, but I think that we should. And he said, you're asking me the Trump question. I said, yes, I am. He took out his Bible and he turned to different passages about, you know, Old Testament kings who had these very deep-seated flaws, oftentimes were, were murderous or lecherous or otherwise corrupt. And he said, you know, what do you see here? I, I see these flawed, oftentimes, you know, poor leaders who were nonetheless put on earth by God to enact his will and enact his plan. And I think, you know, do I support the guy? No. Do I like the guy? No. But I acknowledge that he has a place in history, which is Lewis, he puts it on my shoulder, which is his story. And it was one of the most sort of baffling things I had uh, heard from him in the entire conversation. 
Uh, and it does not satisfy anybody, much less my dad, who asks why these people went 81% for Trump in 2016. It, it was one of the most insightful looks into the sort of lay fundamentalist mindset, as opposed to Pat Robertson's, uh, that I got over the course of my thesis. Okay. Well, <laughs> <laughs> on that note, <laughs> thank you for telling me about this thesis. Thank you for reaching out. This was such a great topic. Of course. Thank you for indulging my my uh, mad ramblings. And thank you for all the work you do putting this podcast out. I'm, I'm a fan of it. It's really exciting to hear about. And uh, thank you for having no me. No problem. Thank you. That actually, that means a lot. Um, all right. Bye, Lewis. All right. Take care. Thank you, Lewis, for your time and for telling us about your thesis and the amount and kinds of work that went into it. Thank you for listening, and I hope you join us again to talk to more seniors about their thesis and better understand why you'd want to burn your draft. Burn Your Draft is a production of Reed College and the Center for Life Beyond Reed, created jointly by students, alumni, and staff. This episode was produced and engineered by me, Reed College student Frank Tangerlini. Our executive producer is Seth Paskin, class in 1990, with technical advising from staff member Joe Janiga. Nate Martin, staff member in class of 2016, is our project manager. Music by Jack Salvucci, class of 2020, and podcast art by alumni Henry Gotchlik and Lillianne Pham, class of 2020. This podcast was made possible by a gift from Seth Paskin.